Acts 16, 16 to 24, for a sermon I've entitled, Wild Times in Philippi. And this is what it says. It had happened as we were going to the place of prayer. A slave girl having a spirit of divination met us, who was bringing her masters much profit by fortune telling. Following after Paul and us, she kept crying out, saying, These men are bondservants of the Most High God. We're proclaiming to you the way of salvation. She continued doing this for many days, but Paul was greatly annoyed. And he turned and said to the spirit, I command you in the name of Jesus Christ to come out of her. And it came out that very moment. But when her masters saw that their hope of profit was gone, they seized Paul and Silas and dragged them into the marketplace before the authorities. And when they had brought them to the chief magistrates, they said, these men are throwing our city into confusion, being Jews and are proclaiming customs which are not lawful for us to accept or to observe being Romans. The crowd rose up together against them, and the chief magistrates tore their robes off them and proceeded to order them to be beaten with rods. When they had struck them with many blows, they threw them in prison, commanding the jailer to guard them securely. And he, having received such a command, threw them into the inner prison and fastened their feet in the stocks. You know, Hollywood movie industry has been putting out films now for 116 years. The first one was in 1908. It was The Count of Monte Cristo. Now, no one knows for certain how many movies have been made, but it's been estimated that that city has put out 500,000 movies over the last 100 plus years. You know, movies can be categorized by the genres, can't they, though? Action and adventure, science fiction, comedy, crime, drama. One of the categories of movies is horror films. Now, according to the Dictionary of Film Studies, a horror film is one that seeks to either frighten or disgust the viewer. To do that, the filmmaker tells a story that employs suspense and tension, terror, and often gruesome scenes. Many times they use dark lighting and eerie music to provide the emotional backdrop for the movie. Now the early horror films, those done in the 30s, tended to focus on monsters, Frankenstein, Dracula, werewolves, and mummies. In the 50s, though, they started to add a science fiction component. Now the terrifying creatures were from outer space. But it was really during the 60s that the horror film genre began to move in a darker direction. Alfred Hitchcock's Psycho is considered to be the first of what they call slasher films. And as the decade rolled on, Hollywood producers started to dabble in occult-themed movies. Roman Polanski directed a film called Rosemary's Baby. By the time you get to the end of the movie, you realize that the father of Rosemary's baby is Satan and the child she's giving birth to is the Antichrist. But you know, the most notorious and blasphemous in that genre was without a doubt The Exorcist, which came out in 1973. It's the story of a demon-possessed girl and the priest who tried to cast the evil spirit out of her. The filmmakers wanted to explore the demonic, but they ended up experiencing it as well. They had all kinds of bizarre and tragic things that happened while they were making the film. One of the main actresses, Ellen Bernstein, she fractured her tailbone while she was filming and uh, afterwards suffered chronic problems for the rest of her life. Linda Blair, the actress who played the demon-possessed girl, she fractured her lower spine and ended up with lifelong scoliosis. Linda's grandfather died on the week they began filming. Now you might think that's just a coincidence, but it wasn't the only death. An actress who played a character who dies in the movie actually died during the filming of the movie. Another who was a night watchman and another who were a refrigeration technician both died. Another actor died a month after the release. The carpenter working on the set cut off his thumb and another one ended up cutting off his toe. 
A number of people connected with the film had family members who died during the filming of it, including a cameraman whose newborn baby died. Well, a few years after that, the director, William Friedkin, uh, when he was asked about this, said this, I'm not a convert to the occult, but after all I've seen on this film, I definitely believe in demonic possession. We were plagued by strange and sinister things from the beginning. Vera Cortier, the main special effects man, said that he felt that I was playing with something I ought not be playing around with. Now, one Jesuit priest who was also a psychologist who taught at Georgetown University in an interview about this by the New York Times criticized the movie saying that while he did believe in the devil, there's not a shred of evidence from the Bible that he can possess anyone. What? Has he never read the Bible? Aren't we told that Satan entered Judas right before he went out and betrayed Jesus? How many times do you find that uh, Jesus encountered people who were demon-possessed in the Gospels? Now, that secular people steeped in naturalistic philosophy wouldn't believe in the reality of demons is not surprising. But for people who claim to be followers of Jesus, they should not only accept the reality, but more than that, we're told to be spiritually on guard against these forces. In Ephesians 6, 10 to 14, Paul tells us that the Christian is supposed to be strong in the Lord and the strength of his might. Put on the full armor of God so that you'll be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, meaning humans, but against the rulers, against the powers, against the world forces of darkness, against the spiritual forces of wickedness in the heavenly places. Therefore, take on the full armor of God so that you'll be able to resist in the evil day, having done everything to stand firm. Well, here in this part of Acts chapter 16, we have a story where Paul and his missionary team encounter a demon-possessed girl. As a result of the exorcism that they perform, he and Silas are thrown in jail. Wow, wild times in Philippi? That's what we want to consider today. So why don't we pray and get into the text. Father God, I do pray for grace and mercy. We're seeing an increase of this type of activity in our culture as people are giving themselves over to all kinds of dark forces. So we pray that you would inform us through this sermon and then prepare us for whatever things we might face in the future. So bless us now. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, if you want to outline this sermon, I think we can do so with four headings. The first you can write down, a demon-possessed girl. A demon-possessed girl. That's 14, or 16 to 17. Second, you find an annoyed apostle. And that's verse 18. Third, we see some upset businessmen. That's 19 to 21. And finally, an enraged crowd. And that's 22 to 23. Now, most people, when they talk about wild times, they think back in their time as a kid or maybe in high school or certainly college, time in the military. But when Paul spoke of wild times in his life, no doubt his mind would have gone to his days in Philippi. But I have to tell you, they didn't start that way. I mean, the first couple of weeks that he was there, he just spent with a number of women down by the river, uh, one of which had become a Christian, Lydia. And so it was quiet and it was calm, but it was going to ratchet up in intensity in a short time. And we see that starting in verse 16 where he encounters a demon-possessed girl. Now, by the way, what's a demon? Well, a demon is an evil spirit. Sometimes in the Bible they're called unclean spirits. These are beings that were created as holy angels along with and at the same time as all the other angels. But Lucifer, who is called in, uh, as he's called in Isaiah 14, 12, we're told in Ezekiel's uh, prophecy that he was the covering cherub. That is the highest of the angels. Evidently it was he who led the rebellion against God, hoping to dethrone him. As it says in Isaiah chapter 14, starting with verse 12, how, have you, how you have fallen from heaven, O Lucifer, son of the dawn. You have been cut down to earth, 
you who have weakened the nations. But you said in your heart, I will ascend to heaven. I will raise my throne above the stars of God. I will sit in the mount of the assembly in the recesses of the north. I will ascend up to the heights of the clouds. I will make myself like the Most High. Nevertheless, you'll be thrust down to Sheol, to the recesses of the pit. Now, many commentators suggest that this is speaking about the fall of the one we now call the devil or Satan. In Revelation 12, 4, it speaks of the dragon who swept away a third of the stars of heaven and threw them to earth. That's probably an allusion to Satan in his rebellion against God. If so, that means that about a third of the angels joined him in that rebellion. Now, demons are not omnipresent like God. They can only be in one place at a time. But they are powerful and deceptive. And according to the book of Job and the Gospels, they can afflict people with illnesses. They can make them blind to the truth and deceive people with false doctrine. Paul refers to doctrines of demons. Well, there's a question we need to ask. Can people be possessed by demons? Well, yes, they can. We're told the spirit, an evil spirit, came upon Saul, remember? David would come and play the harp to soothe Saul until the demon went away. Is it possibly indwelt by more than one spirit? Yeah. We know that Mary Magdalene had seven evil spirits in her before she was converted. But you know, it's not like a person is just walking down the street one day and whoosh, a spirit enters into them. People open themselves and their family members up to the demonic, demonic by dabbling in witchcraft and uh, fortune-telling and tarot cards and Ouija boards and seances. You can enter in through fantasy games like Dungeons and Dragons. The best man in my wedding later got involved in the occult with his drug use. He became paranoid and tried to commit suicide a couple times in his life. Um, Paul tells us here that those who sacrifice to idols are ultimately sacrificing to demons. So any place where there's a lot of idolatry, like places like India and Indonesia, there's going to be demonic activity. Well, here's the question. Can a demon possess a Christian? Well, the answer to that is no, because every Christian is indwelt by the Holy Spirit. No demon can or would share the body of a person with the Holy Spirit. But I have to add this. Though a demon cannot be possess a Christian, demons can certainly oppress and tempt Christians. Remember, Satan gave Job boils from the top of his head to the bottom of his feet. He incited David to take a census of the people. He prompted Peter to tell Jesus, God forbid it, Lord, when Peter said that he was going to, or Jesus said he was going to go up and be crucified in Jerusalem. Jesus recognized it for what it was and said, get behind me, Satan. Now, I know from my own personal experience and the experience of others who've related to me that demons can enter your dream state. And for whatever reason, the most likely time for that to happen is 3 a.m. in the morning. That's what they call the witching hour. Well, what I just related gives some of a background for what we read starting in verse 16. Look what it says. And it happened as they were going to the place of prayer, a slave girl having a spirit of divination met us who is bringing her masters much profit by fortune-telling. Well, following after Paul and us, she kept crying out, saying, These are bondservants of the Most High God who are proclaiming to you the way of salvation. Now, where would you think you would likely encounter a demon? A haunted house? A graveyard? I mean, you wouldn't expect to find one on the way to a prayer meeting, would you? Now, Jesus encountered two demon-possessed men in a graveyard, but he also encountered one in a synagogue, didn't he? One of my teachers when I was at Northwestern College studying to be a pastor, his name was Dr. William Bevere. He served uh, for a time also as the dean of students. He related one time in class that uh, he got a phone call from one of the security guards saying, Bill, can you come down here? 
He said one of the students is walking around from class to class and he's playing music and the different pianos and it's really this bizarre music and I don't know what to do with this guy. I tried to tell him to leave and he wouldn't leave. So Dr. Bavir went there and uh, when they got there, he was in the basement in the Rotundra, those of you who've been there, and this kid was playing a piano, this bizarre music. And they started talking to the guy and he started cursing and then he started foaming at the mouth. He was demon-possessed. They had him kind of in a corner area and they just kept calling out Bible verses to him. And he said that every time they mentioned Jesus in the Bible verse, the demon would throw the kid into a violent convulsion. He said this went on for about a half hour until finally he called out the kid's name and it snapped like that, the demon was gone. Kid didn't know where he was, didn't know why he was there. The next day he dropped out of school and no one heard about him or from him again. Now Paul and his companions were met by this slave girl who were told had a spirit of a divination. Actually, more literally in the Greek, it says that she had a python spirit within her. There was a Greek myth involving the god Apollo who was believed to have slain a serpent at the oracle of Delphi where a priestess used to give fortunes when people would come to inquire. Well, after the python was killed, the powers of fortune-telling went to uh, Apollo. And so one who had a python spirit was a person who was a fortune-teller. I had a woman who was in my Bible study a number of years ago. Her name was Pam. And she related to me that uh, a few months after she gave birth to her twins, her and her friends started messing around with a Ouija board. They became obsessed with it. She told me that she would sit with her in graveyards from 12 o'clock at night till 3 o'clock in the morning doing their Ouija board stuff. By the way, how could she do that when she had twins? She said that when her friend and her would go to bars, they would do card tricks. They'd lay down all the cards, and then they would bet people on whether the one girl could guess which card was it. She said, I could see through the cards to the other side. I knew what all the cards were. She said, we made hundreds of dollars betting people this way. Well, then it got a little darker for her. She started having dreams, and in her dreams, she was murdering her mother. She said, I had a great relationship with my mother, so it really obviously bothered her tremendously. The other girl had gone to church when she was younger, so they found the pastor of the church she had gone to and went and told him what was going on. She said, I remember the pastor kind of chewed us out about this, said, you knew better than to do this kind of thing. And, she said, and then she, he prayed some prayer, and at the end he said something about in Jesus' name, and she said, it was weird because I could feel something leave me just at that moment. She said, the next time we went back to the bar, we tried the same tricks. Couldn't do them. Well, this young woman was making a great deal of money for her masters. They were spiritual pimps prostituting this demon-possessed girl through her fortune-telling. But here's the bizarre thing. This one who is predicting the future suddenly is now proclaiming the truth. Look what it says in verse 17. Following after Paul, and now she kept crying out, saying, these men are bondservants of the Most High God who are proclaiming to you the way of salvation. Now you remember when Jesus met those two demon-possessed men in the graveyard? Matthew 8, 29. It says they cried out saying, what business have we to you do with you, Son of God? Have you come to torment us before the time? Now notice... They knew both that Jesus, who Jesus was, the Son of God, and what their end is, that they would be tormented ultimately in the lake of fire. Demons know the truth, it's just that they hate it. But here's the question. If this slave girl, what she was saying was true, I mean, isn't that a good thing? No. The gospel doesn't need, nor should we accept, accreditation from forces of evil. And plus, if the people start listening to this girl and connecting with it, what happens when they leave and this girl who's demon-possessed is leading these people astray? Well, this is our second point, though. An annoyed apostle. By the way, are you a person who easily gets annoyed? 
I came across a website entitled Top 10 Most Annoying Things. Number one, they said mosquitoes. Number two, slow internet connection. Number three, screaming babies. They always say that little children in church are like good intentions. They should be carried out immediately. Huh? Four, they said advertisements. Number five, people who walk slowly in front of you. And number six, Justin Bieber. That one's self-evident. Most of us are old. You don't even know who he is. There you go. All right. Well, I don't, I don't think the Apostle Paul was probably easily annoyed. I would guess he was a very patient man, but he still had his limits. Look what it says in verse 18. Now, she continued doing this for many days, and Paul was greatly annoyed. Paul put up with this distracting behavior for many days, but like the cartoon character Popeye said, that's all I can stands. I can't stands no more. And he turned and said to the Spirit, I command you in the name of Jesus Christ to come out of her. And it came out that very moment. Now, I want you to notice what Paul did and didn't do here. He didn't run in fear. He dealt with the Spirit head on. And he didn't make the sign of the cross or sprinkle holy water on her that sizzled when it hit her skin. He didn't debate with or argue with the demon. Paul simply commanded the demon to come out in the name of Jesus. Now, as a pastor, over the last 31 years, I've had to deal with open manifestations of the demonic I wrote in here nine to ten times, but this morning I was thinking about it, it was actually about 15 or 16 times. The first time was a woman at the church where I was pastoring. Her and her daughter had uh, dealt with it for 30 years. She told me she had dreams, night after night, the same dream. Went out there, prayed for her. Two weeks later, I got a phone call from her daughter who lived over in Rhineland and said, well, it's here now. I said, well, we're not going out to your house, but we will pray. And of course, then it was gone. Short time after that, it showed up at another relative's house. I had an occasion one time where I had a Satanist who attended our Bible study for several months. I warned the people in the Bible study we'd probably have some strange things happen as a result, and we did. I had another guy a couple of years ago, got a phone call, answer the phone, they said, yeah, is this the church? I said, yeah. So I was just wondering, do you guys like uh, get rid of evil spirits and stuff like that? <laughs> I said, what's going on? So, well, I got involved in this about 10 years ago. Well, it's interesting because he said that he had been possessed on two different occasions. And when Alan and I went out to talk to him for the exorcism, as we would call it, uh, his sister, or his brother, and his girlfriend both said that they had seen him demon-possessed. By the way, I have to say with this guy, he came into the Bible study for a while. We after we prayed for him like that, I asked him, I said, are you dealing with any more demonic? He said, no, it's gone. I said, well, you know, here's the thing. You need to keep coming to the Bible study because if you don't get saved, this could easily come back. And I said, besides that, you'll spend eternity with demons in hell. He came for a few times, then he didn't come back. Okay. About a year or so later, you get a call. He had married his girlfriend. They had a child. And uh, he said, well, it's back, and now there's two of them. I said, Jesus gave a story about a man who had a demon in him. The demon went out came back and found the man's heart clean but empty and went out and found seven demons worse than himself who came back and he said the man's second state was worse than his first. I told this guy, I said, come to the Bible study. It's this Tuesday. I said, you need to get... He never showed up. Well, each time we've always handled it the same way. A couple of the elders of our church will go out to visit the home and while we're there, we pray and ask God to remove the spirit. And so far, each time we've done that, he's answered. Jesus' name has power to it. And you remember, though, when the 
apostles came back from preaching tour that Jesus had sent them on. They were really pumped up. They said, even the demons are subject to us in your name. But Jesus said to him, Behold, I've given you authority to walk on snakes and scorpions and authority over all the powers of the enemy, and nothing will injure you. Listen to this all. Nevertheless, do not rejoice that the spirits are subject to you, but rejoice that your name is recorded in heaven. In other words, the fact that you're saved, that's what you should be most thrilled about. How wonderful a young girl who's been indwelt by a spirit and enslaved by the devil is now free. Free at last, free at last. Thank God Almighty, I'm free at last. Who wouldn't be happy for uh, her masters? That brings us to our third point, the upset businessman. This is verse 19 to 21. But when her masters saw that their hope of profit was suddenly gone, they seized Paul and Silas and dragged them into the marketplace before the authorities. You know, when automobiles first appeared in the 1910s, there was an outcry from something. These contraptions are loud and dangerous. They'll scare the horses when they go by. By the way, that was true. <laughs> Do you know there was one of the early cars, in order to get past that problem, they put a wooden horse's head on the front part of the, of the car. Well, if a horse is stupid enough to think that's another horse, I guess there you go. But one of the groups that lodged a complaint with Congress at that time were the buggy whip manufacturers. Because they were worried that if these automobiles really took off, they would lose their business. But they were right, weren't they? Well, these girls mass, this girl's master didn't uh, view her recent exorcism done by Paul as a great spiritual de uh, deliverance. What they saw was a financial disaster. And think about it. Time and time again, you'll have people who are making money in immoral ways. But there's those who have a vested interest in it continuing who oppose any call for change or reform. Drugs. Child trafficking. Money laundering. You know that old saying that says, follow the money? I mean, how many politicians are caught up in financial scandals? A lot of them. So they drag Paul and Silas before the authorities? I mean, what are they going to demand? That Paul brings back the demon to re-enter the girl? Are they going to sue for damages or for financial loss? Maybe they can get a New York district attorney to get a grand jury to indict our boys. We demand justice. We should be compensated for the loss of the income for the wicked business we were engaged in. David Daladin was uh, doing undercover work as a reporter, secretly plan, uh, filmed Planned Parenthood workers who were harvesting and selling body parts of aborted fetuses. I mean, what a scandal. Did he win a Pulitzer Prize for his investigative journalism? No. He was sued by Planned Parenthood, and the court ordered Daladin to pay that organization $2 million in damages. Sandra Merritt, the woman who helped him in the sting operation, she's facing up to 10 years in prison. Now, reflecting on the power politics of his day, Solomon said this, Then I looked again at all the acts of oppression which were done under the sun, and behold, I saw the tears of the oppressed, and they had no one to comfort them. And power was on the side of the oppressors. Ecclesiastes 4.1 carefully, Jesus never promised that we would get a fair fight or face a just judge. He didn't. Paul and Silas didn't. Look at the charges against them. It says, these men are Jews, who are Jews, are causing our city trouble. And they're proclaiming customs that are not lawful for us to accept or practice since we are Romans. Now, by the way, these, these charges are incendiary, but they're rather vague and short on specifics, aren't they? It wasn't strange customs that they were proclaiming but a different deity. They were proclaiming Jesus Christ as the Son of God and the Savior of the world. Notice what they're really saying is these men have no right to go against the established narrative. They're guilty of spreading disinformation. Years ago, I had someone in the church I was pastoring 
was upset with me. He told me that I had no right to preach or teach anything that everyone in the church did not already agree with. I think what he really meant was I had no right to preach or teach anything that he didn't agree with. The question for him was not, is my pastor teaching what's true and biblical? Instead it was, do I like what he's saying? And he didn't, so that's that. And when the devil gets people riled up, others will often join in. Think of the BLM riots. And that brings us to our last point, an enraged crowd. This is 22 to 23. It says the crowd joined in in the attack against him. You ever heard the term a flash mob? You know what that is? A flash mob is defined by Webster's New Millennial Dictionary of English as, quote, a group of people who organize on the internet and then quickly assemble in a public place to do something bizarre and then quickly disperse. Now lately, some of these flash mobs were not to do something bizarre, but something illegal. They smash in windows and loot stores. The thieves clean out the store and disperse before the police can ever arrive. Well, evidently, there was a flash mob formed when the servant girl's masters made their complaint. But rather than restrain the crowds, notice the chief magistrates tore their robes off and proceeded to order them beaten with rods. Now, back in 1994, an American teenager named Michael Fay, who was uh, in Singapore at the time, was convicted of vandalism. His punishment? He was sentenced to be lashed with a rattan cane six times. President Clinton tried to intervene, but government officials from Singapore said this, it's Singapore's tough laws that have kept our country orderly and relatively crime-free, unlike your cities, like New York City, where even police cars are not spared from the acts of vandals. Well, they carried out the sentence, though they reduced the number of strokes to four. Uh, it cut deep into his back and left him quite sore for about a month. I'll bet he never vandalized another car again, and certainly not in Singapore. Well, Michael Fay was let go immediately after his caning, but Paul and Silas didn't get off so easy. Look what it says in verse 23. When they had struck them with many blows, then they threw them in the prison, commanding the jailer to guard them securely. And having received such a command, he threw them into the inner prison and fastened their feet in stocks. Dear diary, Silas and I had an interesting an eventful day. You know, the day was over, but the wild times were going to continue as we're going to see the next time we're in the book of Acts. It was never a dull moment for Paul. I mean, he might be confronted by a demon, beaten by a mob, thrown into prison, but he was never going to die of boredom. Why don't you think about it, folks? Most people are content to live uneventful lives as long as they have peace and ease and comfort. I mean, give them a tolerable job, some time to hunt and fish on the weekends or maybe shop, to go out and eat occasionally at a nice restaurant and then retire and move to Florida so they can sit on the beach until they die. Give them that. They don't want much more. It's true of some people that you could write on their tombstone, here lies Joe Smith. He died before he ever lived. Well, what lessons should we take away from this story? What megatruths? I'll give you three of them here. First of all, we really are engaged in a spiritual battle. We really are engaged in a spiritual battle. That verse I read from earlier said that our struggle is not against flesh and blood, meaning mere humans, but against rulers, against powers, against world forces of this darkness, against the spiritual forces of wickedness in heavenly places. Do you suppose when Paul cast out that demon and went to the other side of the world? No, I would guess it circled back around and was instrumental in inciting the crowds against him. You know, behind a lot of the political battles that we have going on, there's actually evil spirits working in, on, and through people. Here's the second thing, though, we need to say. Even if we have to battle a host of evil spirits, they're still outnumbered, and they are certainly outgunned. 
If a third of the angels fell, that means that two-thirds didn't, right? These spiritual forces of wickedness might be powerful and crafty, but the Holy Spirit who indwells every Christian is Almighty God. And He's sovereign over all evil forces and the scary things and the difficult things that come into your life. Listen carefully. If you're a believer, there is nothing that's going to come into your life, no matter how hard it is, without God signing off on it first. Matter of fact, He doesn't just sign off of it. He plans it out for your good and for His glory. You know, even when it looks like the world's spinning out of control, it's not. God's still in control. Here's the last thing I need to say. The way we engage in this battle is through proclaiming the truth and by constant prayer. We engage in it by proclaiming the truth and by constant prayer. That passage in Ephesians goes on to say this, Stand your ground, putting on the belt of truth and the body armor of God's righteousness. It says, For shoes, put on the peace that comes from the good news so that you might be fully prepared. In addition to all these, hold up the shield of faith to stop the fiery arrows of the devil. Put on the salvation for your helmet and take the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. Pray in the Spirit at all times and on every occasion stay alert and be persistent in your prayers for all believers everywhere. As Tom Petty saying, well, I won't back down. No, I won't back down. You can stand me up at the gates of hell, but I won't back down. No, I'll stand my ground won't be turned around, and I'll keep this world from dragging me down. going to stand my ground, and I won't back down. So what I'm saying is stand your ground. Don't back down. Trust in Christ, because the outcome has already been determined, and the victory has already been guaranteed. All we have to do is trust the Lord, and then get ready for a wild ride. May God give us the grace. Let's pray. Our Father and God, we are seeing more of this in our culture. Uh, it is true that as people stop believing in the true God, they fall prey to doctrines of demons. And some people are actively involved in these type of things. And uh, I'm guessing that we're going to have to deal with this even more in the years to come. But we know that in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us so. And so we pray, Lord, that you'd help us to be spiritually attuned to what goes on in our world. But most of all, that we would be prepared by trusting in Christ and uh, knowing his word. So bless us now to that end, for we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. Number eight. Number eight.